Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare This is one of these shows that I almost can't believe that we haven't already done, that we would have been on the air for 10 years and not have done a Ram Das show, you know, ideally while he was still alive and maybe could have been on it. If you don't know the name Ram Das, and particularly if you're like my age and you don't know the name Ram Das, you need a more diverse group of friends because by now somebody should have brought up uh, Ram Das to you. Uh, Ram Das, who died quite recently at the age of 80, 88, uh, started out life uh, with the name Richard Alpert. Uh, he was a Harvard professor, pioneered the psychedelic and mindfulness movements of the 60s uh, with uh, his colleague and friend Timothy Leary, then found his lifelong guru in India uh, and became himself. Uh, I think it's fair to say a guru to many thousands and thousands and thousands of people who in turn, like seeds planted, bloomed and, and influenced thousands of other people. And some of those people were very famous people, ranging from Marianne Williamson to Lena Dunham. So we're going to talk about all that today. We're doing the show to pay tribute to his life. And one of the people who was uh, part of his following and who came to know him uh, is Chris Grasso, who's been on our show many times before. Chris Grasso is writer, public speaker, and author with Simon & Schuster, also the host, host of the Indie Spiritualist podcast on the Ram Das Be Here Now network. Chris, welcome back to our studios. Thank you so much for having me, Colin. It's always a pleasure. So I, I just want to begin by telling you my story. So over the weekend, I went to get a prescription filled, and we have a new health insurance numbers here. Yes. And so I'm like AZL 9145609 or something. And so I go to get the prescription filled, and the number doesn't work. And I'm looking at the card, and I'm writing to our HR director, and I'm saying, wow, you know, I've got this new card. And she goes, well, is it AZL 9125 I said, yeah, it is. Well, it's not working. The medical's not loaded, and I'm stressing about all. All this and in the midst of all this, I started listening to your interviews with Ram Das, and I just started laughing. I mean, like what a good Ram Das joke that was right. that I'd gotten myself really wound up. There's a way in which this seems like one of his jokes. Truly, you know, there is of course an importance to your medication in the situation, mm -hmm. but one of the things I'm grateful for is you know he's taught me so much. Simple things like that where I find myself in traffic or at a long line in a grocery store and I have to be somewhere and I'm looking at my watch and it's like, you know, I'm getting tense. And then I'm like, is this really in my control? No. You know, and, and Ram Dass has helped his seminal book, Be Here Now. I just come back to the breath, maybe work with a mantra that he has taught me. It's not that it makes everything perfect, but it makes it better. Uh, life a bit less stressful. And, you know, I think we can all use some of that in our day-to-day -day lives. Right. I mean, if you can even absorb and implement and internalize like 33% of what he's saying, yes. you're going to be in an amazingly better state Absolutely. <laughs> than you were when you were at zero of what he was saying. So let's take an example of that. I'll just have you react to it. Yeah. Uh, this is a, a clip where he is talking about the idea of masks. This is from a fairly recent documentary. And this is the interviewer you'll hear is Jamie Cato. When you take off your mask, it's easier for everybody else to take off that. But the, our cultures are so mask-driven. 
Imagine what an office would be like with no masks. That's the irony about masks. The irony is that we wear a mask because the people around will only love us if we wear this mask. But the crazy thing about that is we don't really want to hang out with people that only want the masks one. No. So we're exhausting ourselves wearing a mask for people we don't want to hang out with. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So that's another one of these things, right? He's telling you something that you kind of already know, but you don't implement. Right. Absolutely. And the kind of irony to that segment is that almost a month ago to the day of his passing, I'd written my first piece with Fangoria, which is for those that don't know, kind of the premier horror uh, magazine and website and has been since I was a child, but about masks. And what a cool way for me to be able to take my passion in life, which is just helping others on their well-being journeys and share it with, you know, a place such as Fangoria. Who would have thought? But that's something that Ram Das taught me is that, or taught everyone essentially that took up his teachings is that the spiritual path is highly individualized and that it's not true that one path is right for everyone. And that's what resonated with me right away was that, wow, so I can be me. I don't have to put these masks on, which I did. You know, I, I bought into the whole spiritual materialism tip when I started and I did, you know, I basically spiritualized my own ego, you know, got the malas, learned the language, wore the Om shirts and not that there's anything wrong with that. But after a couple of years, I realized, what am I really doing here? You know, and the deeper I went into the practice, the more I realized, no, you can be Chris, you know, the physical form, Chris, true to yourself while still, you know, becoming a better person, while still healing yourself and helping others along their way. So I've only known you for, I don't know, maybe about a year or something, yeah, like, something take, like that. Yeah. So like the other day, you and I were in West Harbor Center, or yeah. I was there with my son, yes. and you struck him as a very impressive person for me to know because you're all tatted up and you're, you've got this kind of <laughs> speed metal look to you, which is not in fact uh, an illusion. You are like into metal and all kinds of pretty yeah. hardcore rock and stuff like that. Hip-hop too. Got to yeah. give my shout out. Hip-hop too. Yeah. And did you let yourself go back to that a little bit? Like if I would you be have been two or three years ago if I'd met you a little bit more crunchy granola looking with your own shirt? Um, so when I first got into Ram Dass, it was about, I don't know, give or take 20 years ago. Mm. So if we're going back 20 years yeah. ago, I never went full like granola or hippie looking. And mm. again, not there's anything at all wrong with no. that. Um, but I pretty much still dressed the same. But I might have instead of the black T-shirt with mm. the, you know, the punk hardcore hip hop band on it, it might have had like the Ohm symbol mm. or a Ganesh or, a, you know, whomever mm. um, and the malas. And sometimes I still wear malas, but I actually wear them and use them. And I know that they are worn often as a fashion statement. So it goes. And um, you might have to explain malas. Yes, uh, they are kind of the equivalent if we're talking about the, the Catholic tradition mm. of rosaries, where instead of used to repeat the Hail Marys or Our Fathers, there's a million and one mantras and people essentially just use them uh, bead by bead, repeating the mantra to help anchor you back into your body, calm your discursive mind. And that's essentially what they are used for. Right. So I want to go back to that quote and the, your reaction to that quote yeah. uh, of him, because in my limited sense, my, my sense is that he would say, all right, so, Chris, once you've got your masks off and you feel like you can, you're kind of back to just being Chris, you still have a ways to go. Oh, right? yeah, because even identifying as Chris mm -hmm. is just part of the game, as he would say. You know, there's 
in his documentaries and his work, he is always talking about these different levels of existence and planes of existence, and um, and not just him. A lot of even physicists talk about this, and that's what I love is that the way he approaches his teachings, um, it's kind of side by side uh, in a scientific sense as well. But yes, that's just part of this ongoing, almost seemingly never-ending journey. So yeah, that's one phase. But then now I'm Chris. And okay, but Chris is just this, as he would say in the recent documentary and has said before, a uh, spacesuit, so to speak, or mm-hmm. a, you know, a bodysuit. As Alan Watts uh, would say, possibly not verbatim, but you know, we are this kind of bag of skin carrying around meat and bones. And the core is coming back, at, Ram Das would say, to the soul. Mm-hmm. Other people might call that consciousness. Thich Nhat Hanh and many Buddhist teachers often use the analogy of an ocean and a wave. Mm-hmm. The body is like that wave that is still connected to the ocean and will return to the ocean. It's just temporarily taken form as the wave. There's a, there's a great moment uh, in that documentary, which I think is, I think is called Becoming Nobody, yeah. where the interviewer is asking about it, asking about his own physicality. And he yeah. says, I have thoughts, yeah, but then my body you know, takes over and it's tied up in knots and I feel all these things right. very penetratingly in my body. And Ram Das, who has this just terrific smile. I yes. mean, just close to death and after the stroke, he's actually developed an even more radiant smile. Palpable. And, he, and he just smiles and he points at his head. And and so then the guy says, well, no, I mean, I understand that these things start with my thoughts, but now I'm dealing with them in my body and they're very present and they're very real in my body. Right. And he says this a little bit more and Ram Dass just smiles the same smile again and points and kind of taps on his forehead. Right. <laughs> like all of this stuff that's going on in your body, it still is all originating at the level of thought. Right. And he is absolutely correct. I think one of the tricks, though, when it comes to spirituality is that people, uh, and myself included when I first got involved, it's called spiritual bypassing, where spirituality can even be used as a means of aversion. You know, we said to meditate. The goal in that is to get deeper and in touch with that primordial source, that universal self that we truly are. But people will use it as a way of dropping out or escaping our feelings and emotions. Right. So, I can't do it, deal with you and your need to be loved right now because I'm meditating. Yes. So I can't. I exactly. Can't love you. And so Ram Das would often, uh, I think he'd often quote Nagarjuna or at least the two truths. It's another Buddhist doctrine. And I'm not Buddhist or, you know, Ram Das was uh, more of a Hindu tradition. But, you know, the two truths says essentially there's the truth of the relative and the truth of the absolute relative being anything that is form, truth that is anything that is not taken form, scientific. Scientifically speaking, you know, subatomic particles, atoms, molecules, all that good stuff that come together to create form. So it's just as true that, yes, we're in these physical human bodies and we have to take care of ourselves. We can't pretend like, you know, we're just this blissed out spiritual being that's too good for the human body. If that were the case, why why are we here to begin with? And, right. and Ram Das addresses that too. I think also the thing that makes him different uh, and I think made him special to a lot of people was he, there was a way in which he never completely shed his own humanness. He had a sense right. of humor about himself, about his failures, about his weird thing, how people might be perceiving him. Yes. There was always a way in which he was giving you an on-ramp to whatever highway that he was on, but it was an on-ramp that you could recognize. Let's hear uh, another clip uh, where he's sort of basically talking about issues of being human. Now, in the course of the years, I've developed a lot of very strange friends. And one of them is a being named Emmanuel. And Emmanuel is interesting because Emmanuel doesn't have a body. And I know some of you here have a difficult time accepting my friend Emmanuel. You say you have no prejudices about color, sex, religion. 
but bodies somehow if somebody doesn't have a body you immediately don't know that you want to accept them but I figure that's your problem because he's my friend and uh, I the way I figured is I'll take my teachings anywhere I can get them and Emmanuel said to me when I said to him, Emmanuel what work do I have to do now he said you took a human birth you're so busy being holy why don't you try being human funny I'd never thought of that isn't that far out <laughs> Because somehow being human was less than perfect. But original sin was going to have a last stronghold right here. <laughs> so that's that point all over again, really. Yeah. I, I had no idea you were going to play that clip, <laughs> but that couldn't have uh, emphasized the point any better. And also it, it shows another part of what I love about Ram Dass is his humor. Mm-hmm. You know, he can just, like I try to do, use himself. And I think he even says this in that Becoming Nobody documentary that he uses himself as his own test subject and that's where his teachings come from. For the most part, he, of course, you know, shares the wisdom of saints and yogis and sages that came before him. But um, he highly influenced my own uh, approach to writing and teaching in that similar sense. I just kind of use myself as that test subject. And um, I, yeah, yeah. So there's a, a way in which he's operating at our level and operating at a level of humor that we can recognize and yeah. humanity that we can recognize, recognize. But there are other ways in which he does seem to be operating oh, yeah. at some other level. I mean, you had this experience yourself. Yes. Talk about the first time that you met him Absolutely. where he, he suddenly knew something about yeah. you that you hadn't told him. Yeah, they, well, there's two crazy stories that um, just I've still blow my mind. But that one particularly, uh, it was five or six years ago, and it was at a retreat in Maui that he does or did twice a year, which will be continuing for listeners. And I'm so glad uh, that they've decided to do that. But uh, it was after one of the teaching segments and Mira by Bush, who is also going to be on this uh, episode, called me over and um, uh, to the stage and said, Chris, I want you to come meet Ramdas. You know, we've spoken many times via Skype and whatnot, but never met in person. Now, like you, Colin, I've interviewed a million and one people. I don't get starstruck. I don't get nervous. But this is a teacher that had just like cracked my heart wide open and is essentially one of the biggest reasons that I'm still alive today. So I felt as I'm walking over a bit nervous, a bit shaky. I mean, I don't think it was very noticeable. I, I wasn't you know, like, uh, but he must have on that level sensed it because the first thing he did was, well, I, I said, hello, Ram Das. Mm-hmm. And before I could say anything else, he, he motioned for me to kind of come in closer because he was in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And I did. And he touched my goatee, kind of stroked it. And he said, uh, it's so small. And that's in reference to anyone who knows Ram Das. He used to have this huge beard, you know, that was part of his shtick. And I mean, huge. And it was his way of kind of bringing me down. He was making fun of me in a heartfelt way. And I was just like, wow, Ram Das just busted my chops. Like first thing in, you know, we ever did in person. And from there on, like it brought me right back down. And, you know, we only had a few moments before we had to do a, a live uh live Skype with somebody else, but it was uh, really meaningful. And mm. yeah, I mean, how did he know? Because I know I wasn't physically showing that, mm. but. So I was listening to you interview him today. And so this is post-stroke. Yeah. Uh, and at one point, I think you're asking him a question about like young people you know who are atheists and what to say to them. And yeah. I think I think that's the one where he says, well, it's only words. Um, and which is his response to a lot of things, yeah. right? That our capacity to uh, name things, our desire right. to name things kind of gets in our way of understanding things. But there's kind of an interesting 
and rather poignant irony there because words are no longer coming easily to him. He's sure. struggling to answer your questions. Sometimes he just can't find a very simple word or a verb construction to set it up with. Right. Uh, there are occasional long, very pregnant and eloquent silences. Right. I mean, there was a way in which, and he himself said, I think, that you know the, the stroke had taken away his ability to play the cello and yeah. make love and do all kinds of other things yeah. and left him with spiritual introspection. Now that 11 years of stroke that I, I that was a stroke was starting a new chapter of my life because instead of uh, instead of spending time running around my sports car and my my cello and my um, playing golf or things like that. I I I turned inward. I turned inward because of the strong. And and there's a way in which the everything that he's fighting with and dealing with there is maybe getting him and maybe you closer to where it is you're trying to go anyway. You, you're absolutely right. Yeah. He talks about, it's called fierce grace and mm-hmm. how that stroke to him was uh, grace. He didn't see it as such in that moment, but uh, in a way it left him in that position where, wow, I still have work to be done. And that's what showed him that he had work to be done. And he says something very poignant um, were, uh, again, might not be verbatim, but I don't wish you the stroke upon you, but I wish the grace that it brings to you. And yes, yeah, so I look at hardships in my own life and my own near-death experiences and struggles with addiction and, um, you know, literally that the hell that I have walked and um, and that light. And he also says, suffering is the sandpaper of our incarnation. It does its job of shaping us. And that is something I read many, many years ago and have held on to very tightly during exceptionally difficult times. So, you know, there's it's interesting because I've sort of encountered two sentiments uh, about sort of his meaning right at this moment, particularly to maybe people, let's say, in their college years or in their 20s. One of them is the thing that I was just referencing before. Well, there's an awful lot of people who are kind of turning away from any kind of spirituality and saying, well, no, what would be really smart for me would be to be an atheist and reject all of the mumbo jumbo and claptrap and things, you know, spaghetti monsters. But there's also another sense, and I've seen it uh, referenced particularly with Ram Dass, that this is a time when some, I guess, other members of the same cohort are are hungry yes. for spirituality and particularly maybe the kind of spirituality embodied and expressed by him. I, yes. I don't know. What's your take on all that? No, I absolutely agree with you. I w- I'm constantly surprised and yet somewhat not surprised at the uh, amount of young people that are attracted to his work, whereas they're not attracted to other spiritual teachers. And I think that's because since day one, Ram Dass has been straight up. You know, he will joke about that in the documentary you talked about phony holy and he went through his own phase he'd be meditating for six years but or not six years uh, six hours a day and you know in in some foreign country and looking holy but he's sitting there like imagining you know these orgasmic experiences with other people and and whatnot but um 
There's no judgment. There's no, this is the way, that is the way. You know, he keeps it very real, very raw, very honest. And that's what immediately attracted me to him because I was very anti-spirituality and religion. I actually didn't even know there was a difference. And it was thanks to Ram Dass where I learned, uh, and some some other people too, but Ram Dass was very early in this phase that it, it is okay, you know, to be you and to learn from these teachings and to still do what you're going to do and be who you're going to be. And, you know, yes, incorporate practices if you want to go deeper and learn from those who have come before you. But ultimately, uh, he says even his guru, Maharaj, is just, you know, another being. Like he would say, I'm the fish hook. I'm, I'm the hook for Maharaji. And Maharaji is just one of, if everything is interconnected, like the great mystic wisdom traditions point to, then it's all just manifestations of oneness. Well, Chris Grasso, I'm getting all these messages from producer Betsy Kaplan, who's so like imprisoned in like, well, how long the show is, you know, like how much time we have. Oh. And she doesn't see that it's a trap she's made for herself. Betsy, you know? come on. Yeah, I mean, she, but anyway, <laughs> in order to have time for Amir Abai Bush, who uh, you mentioned in Sharon Salzberg, yes. who are also coming up here, we, we have to say goodbye to Chris Grasso, a writer, a public speaker, author with Simon & Schuster, also the host of the Indie Spiritualist, pod, Spiritualist podcast on Ram Dass. Be Here Now Network, and not incidentally, a regular guest on our own show, The Nose, where we're happy to have him. Uh, and also, my stock went way up uh, when my son met him, and uh. Chris <laughs> pretended to know who I was. Uh, all right, thanks for being here. Thank you, Colin. It's a pleasure. We crave it so Makes you wanna laugh out loud when you see that goblet and candy. We think it's easy, sometimes it's easy, but it's not easy. You're gonna break down and cry. Welcome back. I'm Colin McEnroe. This is Connecticut Public Radio, uh, and we are doing a, a show about the life and about the death, really, of Ram Das. And joining us now are two more guests, Mirabai Bush, a senior fellow at the Center for Contemplative Mind uh, uh, in Society and a founding board member with Ram Das of the Siva Foundation, where she uh, direct, uh, directed the Siva Guatemala Project, co-author with Ram Das of Walking Each Other Home, Conversations on Loving and Dying, and Compassion in Action. Action, setting out on the path of service. And then joining us from the Argo Studios in New York, Sharon Salzberg is the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, and the author of 10 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Loving Kindness, her newest book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World, will be published this summer. We are also going to be talking in particular about this really uh, short and beautiful documentary uh, about uh, how really kind of he saw his own end. I think maybe it's a good way to, to put it. And so we'll come back to that. We're going to circle back to that. But, you know, listening to a lot of the lectures today, I'm going to get both of you to talk about this. But, you know, this is a story that happens all over the world. The story of Ram Dass happens all over the world. He's traveling all over the world, visiting every place you can think of and some that you can't. But so much of the story happens in India. And I believe uh, all of you kind of connected uh, on the streets of India. So I don't know, Sharon, maybe maybe start things off here. Uh, explain how you met Ram Dass. I met Ram Dass in January of 1971 in this town in India called Bodh Gaya, which is 
uh, the town where the descendant of the tree, where they say the Buddha got enlightened, exists. So there was an intensive 10-day meditation retreat I heard about when I was still in New Delhi. I did meet Mirabai on the streets of New Delhi, <laughs> and we both went to this intensive retreat, and there was Rondas as another attendee, and it was while we were there that he got the first copy of Be Here Now delivered to him. It was in a box. We all sat around and, and looked at it, and he was very much the patriarch. You know, he'd already been fired from Harvard. He had a guru. He had been renamed as Ramdas, and it was only a long time later, looking back, I realized he was probably like 38 years old or something like that. Right, and and Mirabai, uh, same with you, and this was maybe planned as a shorter visit that turned into a, a longer visit? Yeah, I went to India. I had been traveling overland. I'd been teaching in this country at SUNY Buffalo, and it was during the Vietnam War and a lot of social change. And I was just looking for a place and people who understood a saner way of being on this planet than I was being exposed to, even at a place that I loved with extraordinary professors and so on. So I gone through Europe and the Middle East, and then one day, I, like the first day I was in India, I met Sharon on the street. We'd been to the same school, but we hadn't known each other. And uh, she told me about this retreat that was happening. So I just quite impulsively went there, and we learned to meditate. We sat in silence, meditating pretty much all the time for two or three months, and it changed all of our lives. And that's where I met Ramdas as well. Most people who were there had just gotten out of college or were even younger. But I had gone to graduate school, then gotten married and divorced. And so I was older than some of the others and closer to Ramdas in age. And we became friends in a funny way. Right. And so this happens, Sharon, at a time. It, it's interesting because in the preceding segment, one thing that Chris and I were sort of talking about is is right now really different maybe from the 60s and 70s, or is it very similar in the sense of people very dissatisfied with the way things are and looking for something else? And probably Ram Dass would say it was it's both, you know. Um, but, but this is a time when people are questing, right? There's an unhappiness. Uh, America's mired in the Vietnam War. People know that's wrong, but they can't seem to change it. Uh, there's also a sense that traditional institutions uh, of learning and spirituality aren't cutting it somehow, aren't really delivering the kind of messages people need. Maybe you can say a little bit more about this. This is There's a reason you're all in India, right, Sharon? Oh, yeah, and I'm fascinated by that reflection. Like I just went back to Buffalo after low these many years and, and gave a talk there and Somebody gave me a tour of the campus, the old campus, which was the, the campus I attended, and I could point out the window, oh, you know, that's the place I got tear gassed. I remember that. <laughs> or, you know, school was like a constant riots. I mean, it was really amazing. And there was this tremendous angst. And I think, you know, looking back, I think we were searching for something real, even going to one's traditional religious figures, you know, you often met with some abstraction or there was very much a sense of like a lived spirituality was something that happened a long time ago and we need to admire those people. But everybody hungered for something real and, and something direct in their lives. And many of us ended up in India. It was, it was kind of amazing. 
But, you know, Mirabai, well, first of all, maybe you could say a little bit more about this. I'm sure you echo Sharon's sentiments, too, that you were kind of coming out of that kind of cauldron. Absolutely. I often say it's hard to, particularly when I'm teaching younger people, it's hard to imagine now, but I think actually it's getting easier to imagine now, being in this country and feeling like something is very, very wrong. And that's the way it felt, and we acted it out. You know, we'd go to D.C. and demonstrate against, you know, the Pentagon or the Justice Department and get tear gassed and radicalized, really. I found out at one point that the FBI had gotten the grades from my courses. <laughs> I thought, this is completely bizarre. So anyhow, many things all came together at that time and led me to want to find something different. Right. So J. Edgar Hoover thought, really, you weren't working that hard at physics. Uh, you <laughs> needed to really apply yourself a little bit more. All right. Yes. So, you know, one of the things what I really want to ask you both about is how you how you process all of that through the lens of, of the teachings you got from Ram Dass, from, from his guru. I read these quotes from him that are sort of very different from the highly polarized kind of dichotomous way that we saw the world then. I'm old enough to remember that, too. And the way we see the world now, you know, he says, I know many of you will feel uncomfortable when I say this, but the hippies create the police as much as the police create, create the hippies. The liberals create the conservatives. The protesters create the John Birchers just as much as the John Birchers create the protesters. That as long as you are attached to whatever pole you are representing, the vibrations which you are sending out are creating its polar opposite. You know, we know he had a Donald Trump picture, I think, on his puja table near the end. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. Sharon, this is maybe a different way of seeing things than most of what we hear in America right now and probably in America back then. Maybe say some more about that. Well, I think part of what happened is I think for me and for many people who went, we went to India or we went exploring in some way because of our personal pain. And there needed to be a sense of uh, finding an inner resource that was different than just being like outraged all the time and angry all the time and grief-stricken over over some process, internal or external. And and many of us found it. And and there was some sense of a capacity within to love. And and that's sort of the point that you can take very strong action and and you can stand for something and, and you can be very intense and even fierce, but you can be coming from a place of love and compassion and not from such a sense of, of division and hatred and and so on. And, and that was like a remarkable finding. And, you know, I think for me and for many people, it was very personal in that the early years of our exploration were really about ourselves and coming to to some place of healing. But then there was Ramdas, and he was so audacious. And I can remember coming back to the States and hearing he was working with homeless people. And I thought, really? You know, like... Um, that's kind of external, isn't it? You know, and, and then he was working with dying people and he was working with prisoners and he was always a leader and in my mind sort of taking a lot of risks in a way. He was always ahead of me for sure and and many of us and, and saying, well, you know, this is a part of it too. It's not just about coming to a better place yourself. It's also about including people who are normally excluded or 
or trying to see the other point of view or something like that. Right. The Christian equivalent of that might be pick up your cross. I, I, I worked yeah. for a long time with a pastor who, uh, who she's now gone, but she would say that, you know, it's just not enough to make Jesus your personal savior and do all that, you know, happy stuff. You got to pick up your cross. So right. let's hear Ramdas talking about kind of his version of that. When I went to my guru in India and I said to him, uh, Maharaji, uh, how do I get free? He said, feed people. I said, feed people? I mean, you don't expect you go all the way to the Himalayas, you know, and you sit at the feet of the guru, and you expect him to say, come into this cave and I will give you the word, and, uh, you know, and you will sit quietly and then you will go through and you'll be free. He says, feed people. So I tried a different tack. Maharaji, how do you get enlightened? He says, serve people. Well, I heard him say it, but I figured, you know, what does he know? <laughs> he's just considering me kind of low life, you know? I mean, he's not taking me seriously as a spiritual seeker because the serious guys meditate. You understand? So Mirabai, you know, this sort of gets into something that is, just fascinates me all the time. Like, what's real radical action, you know? And, and once again, to continue the Christian analogy, you know, there's a moment where like, Jesus repeatedly would go and sit with the people who are the most outcast, the most loathed. At one point, he insists on eating with the taxpayers, well, uh, tax collectors, excuse me. Everybody hated the tax collectors. They were often collecting on behalf of, from Jews on behalf of the Roman Empire. So good, I'll go sit with the people nobody likes. And, and I hear some of that here, too. It's kind of like, oh, you want to do something really radical? Do, do this. Take care of people that nobody's taking care of. Maybe you can say some more about that. Mm, such a big subject. Yeah, well, one thing is that, as you said, Maharaji, our teacher, guru, said love everyone and serve everyone. Part of it is that putting yourself into those situations is a place where you learn so much. You learn so much about your own attachments and, you know, your own limitations. I, with Seva, I worked in Guatemala for 10 years from 86 to 96, and it was so painful. People were in the worst condition that you can imagine, and they had nothing. And um, what I found was I needed to do practices in order to keep my heart open, to keep myself calm and centered and clear so I could figure out what's the next thing we could do that would be helpful. I needed to do various practices in order to, when I got back to wherever I was staying at night, um, just let go, let go of all the sadness and suffering that I was holding. It helped me put everything in perspective. So in, as a spiritual practice, as Maharaji was telling us, love everyone and feed everyone or serve everyone, it was so powerful for me. Thinking now about, you know, what to do about changing things in this country, if our minds and hearts are like so full of anger at people we don't like in the situation, there's no room for anything else, no room for creative thought or loving kindness. 
So uh, we're going to take a little break right now. I just have to say this one thing because it's kind of funny. And this will set up the conversation on the other side of the break. So today I was watching this beautiful uh, documentary, Going Home, uh, about the last days uh, of Ram Dass. After I watched the whole thing, I just sort of spontaneously tweeted out, the big existential question is, is death a bug or a feature? Uh, (laughs) And and it's clear, obviously, that Ram Dass thinks it's a feature. But anyway, this Buddhist friend of mine, uh, Garrett, just tweeted back at me, don't you mean, is life a bug or a feature? Uh, so that'll, that'll get us into our, our final segment here. Mirabai and uh, Sharon are coming right back. Uh, let's take a break and we'll rejoin. Welcome back. This is Colin McEnroe. Uh, this is our show on Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, yeah, I want to spend this final segment talking uh, about kind of the – well, let me just begin in a different place. All right. So I was watching this beautiful documentary, Going Home, which is set in Maui uh, in, and lots of clips from the past and everything like that. But, you know, showing the the last days and really what Ramdas is thinking about and talking about as he faces the end. And, you know, he says, I think repeatedly, Mirabai, something like, um, love something and become one with it. Mm. And so, and I was thinking, I have, so I have this new dog. His name is Declan, and I've had him for about three months. Mm-hmm. And I take him out to these places where, I mean, I'm sort of thinking, who's the bodhisattva around here? And it's kind of Declan. You know, I take him out to these open spaces where he can just run around, and they're a little, you know, it's meadows, and the meadows have these ditches, and they fill up with rainwater, and he just plunges into the rainwater, and he drinks it, and he comes out and looks around. And boy, talk about love something and become one with it. You know, he just looks like he's just indistinguishable to him. It's all just this moment of pure happiness for him. And I I think, well, dogs, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> They're really good at this. But this is really hard for the rest of us to do, right? I mean, Amirabai, I'm watching the movie and I'm thinking, I, I, I want to be that, but it's so hard to do. He did say it to me, and but I'm going to defer to Sharon because she's mm-hmm. kind of an expert on this subject. All right, Sharon, you're the expert. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I was going to defer to Mirabai. Um Well, I mean, I think, you know, we also live in a culture where uh, death is—it's <laughs> not a, a common reflection, you know. If anything, we're we're accumulating a lot of totems against having to acknowledge that we're going to die, <laughs> and and, uh, and along the way, everything is changing constantly. And so, I mean, that's been a gift of meditation practice for me—is helping me tune into all these different aspects of change, like the the beautiful possibility of openings and new beginnings and creation and. And renewal, and also the reality that everything's fleeting, that we can't grasp, we can't seem to hold on to anything, and if we try, then we really suffer. And and so it's opened the door to a whole other way of living, which presumably is a whole other way of dying, because many of us, you know, we don't have that skill. It's not something we've been brought up with, and and yet we can become more aware. We can practice letting go. We can practice the fullness of being that comes from being able to let go. 
And it's, it's a very different kind of life. Right. And so, you know, at the end of the previous segment, I was saying that thing is de- death a bug or a feature. And mm-hmm. so uh, clearly Ramdas thinks it's a feature and that it's, you know, there's a lot of talk, Mirabai, in the movie about consciousness. And so yeah. I think for all, most of us, that's our big fear, right? That we have this thing called consciousness. It's ours. It's my consciousness. I am specifically conscious, in, you know, uh, of my world and my reality and myself. And so when I think about consciousness, and the preservation of consciousness, I'm really thinking in a very individualized way. And as I watched that movie, I thought, oh, he's talking about something else, right? <laughs> he's, he's talking about a consciousness where I just go back and, and, and rejoin a, a consciousness yeah. that exists in, in a much more collective way. Yeah. It's the same question, really, I think, as about becoming one with what you love. Mm-hmm. And... I'll say that we often think, oh, I'm not a very conscious person. I'm just conscious of my own thoughts. Or I'm not a very loving person. I'm okay, but not really. But part of what we learned and what Ramdas taught was that there are practices that allow you to become more loving and more conscious. And in the loving practices, as you let go of thoughts that keep you from being fully in the moment and you allow that moment to fill with love, you create this space of unconditional love, of big love. And so whoever, whatever puppy is there is part of that love that you're experiencing because you begin to experience this love for everything everywhere. And, you know, they're almost interchangeable love and consciousness in the sense that as you allow yourself to let go of busy thoughts and emotions for this moment and sit in just simple awareness, you experience the way you are part of everything. And this might start sounding, you know, a little, I'm not sure what, but but it's true. And so as you experience that, you realize that it's all interconnected. And that changes the way in which in your ordinary moments in life that you relate to other people and puppies and everything. Right. And, you know, I don't know if either one of you have had this experience, but I've spent at other times in my career a lot of time talking to people who have near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems that they that they often have, and it, it really was a pattern, not every single person has this, but if they have that, um, that, that encounter with pure love, you know, with some radiant presence mm-hmm. that is unconditional love, when they come back, they are so radically changed that they almost can't function because they do love everybody. And in fact, they, they love their, their families, their spouses, but they also love the people that they've never met before who are broken down by the side of the road mm-hmm. and you've got to stop the car and help these people because uh, it's a hot day and you were about to take your wife and kids to the beach but and they think that's where they're going. Yeah. <laughs> but you have to do this other thing now because you have understood your own existence in a completely different way. And and I don't know, yeah, somebody's one of one of the two of you or maybe both of you are assenting <laughs> to this. So whoever has something to say, just jump right in. Go ahead, Jaron. Well, I mean, the thought that that experience leads to not being able to function was a little startling. So right. I'm, I'm grappling with that, you know, because maybe it's that we don't have many models either, you right. know, which is why 
I would imagine Ramdas or Mirabai, you know, who who both studied with New Curly Baba or Maharaji, uh, would say he functioned pretty well, yeah. you know, from that place. But we can hardly believe it. We can hardly imagine it. And certainly, people do often say. Uh, I think more than often, you know, like so commonly say that if, if they've had that kind of near-death experience that there was a quality of wholeness or bliss mm-hmm. and radiance and on the other side, so to speak, and that they never forget it. Right. And yeah, and I didn't mean to say that they weren't they couldn't function. In fact, it's the rest of us who can't function. The rest right. of us who right. are kind of attached to certain kinds of outcomes. And I'm sure from the point of view of the poor people who were car broke down by the side of the road that this mm-hmm. newly, you know, loving person is about to stop and help, they think that person's functioning just fine. Yeah, that's, true. that's true. Great. So I don't know, Mirabai, you know, we're kind of running towards the end of this show, which seems like it's flown by very quickly. But I, I don't know. I, I, when I was about to watch that documentary, I was thinking, ah, gee, I don't want to, yeah, I don't watch it. I don't want to watch anybody die, including Ramdas. you know? I mean, I know it's going to be like way better <laughs> than most because of who he is and stuff, but I don't want to watch it. And then obviously, I, I, you know where I'm, what I'm about to say. I was really brought to a very different place about this. Uh, I mean, the, the, the film itself is very beautiful to look at, so that helps. But also mm-hmm. that notion, the way that he explains it all, uh, I, I made me considerably less fearful. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, you uh-huh. both had sort of close-up looks at, at somebody who was going through all this. He had the stroke. He saw the stroke and the, the dependency that came out of the stroke as a tremendous lesson uh, mm-hmm. uh, of needing other people and having to ask for things. I, I don't know. Like, I want to hear from both of you. Let's start with you, Mirabai. What did you learn from watching all that? That it's possible, mm-hmm. you know, the possibilities in this human life were so expanded by being with him. It wasn't that I wanted to grow up and be an Indian man in a blanket with students, you know. Right. But there's the possibilities of the spaciousness of human life was so amazing. And Rondas really lived into that, particularly after the stroke. He At first, he really resisted, of course. He lost so many capacities. But then he kind of surrendered into it being a gift to him, that it was something to learn from. And he started understanding that letting go, letting go, and at the same time being fully present was what his practice was now. And really, he did die in peace and love, for sure. Love, I'll just say, love and wisdom are very interconnected. Mm -hmm. And that along with that opening to that great love comes, you know, with experience and being in community with other people who are trying to figure this all out, you know, reading good things. But wisdom arises, and over time you start making really better decisions about how to lead your life. And, And... Ramdas really showed how living a life of being loving to everybody, which he did after the stroke, just his understanding really deepened. So, 
Yeah. So uh, we're going to have to. Uh, we're almost here at the end, and and uh, I feel bad about that, but uh, I also am very grateful to our our two uh, guests, Mirabai and and Sharon. You know, as we come to the end here, Sharon Salzberg, I'm going to ask you a version of the same question. So um, I've mm-hmm. t- when I talk to members of the clergy, uh, if you catch them in an honest moment, they always say, "Well." Yeah, actually, I'd rather do a funeral than a wedding. Because what are you going to say at a wedding? You know, you're going to be happy, love each other, all this kind of stuff. But a funeral is a real teaching opportunity. You can really say some important stuff if you're doing the homily or whatever at a funeral. And I felt watching... Ramdas, who's been teaching his entire life and teaching in every possible way and every possible format, I, I did feel as though we were being taught one final thing. I, I'd be interested to know what you think that that thing is. That <laughs> I think it, had, it was a combination of courage and peace. You know, when you played the the recording of Ramdas um, pre-stroke mm-hmm. uh, just now, you know, and it, it was like that was his superpower was his speech. He had a golden tongue. He was so brilliantly articulate. And and then came the stroke and a lot of aphasia and, you know, those long, long pauses. And both Mirabai and I have often been on the stage with Ram Dass and there's a long pause as he's searching for the mm-hmm. word or, or searching to get the word out. I think he had the word, but he couldn't get it out. And you'd want so badly to put it in because you knew just what he was going for and you couldn't. And I kept thinking, you know, if that were me, where I still get up there in front of all these people, if I were um, so different from how I was, and the thing, the very thing I was notable for was gone, and and he did it. The last retreat that he taught, which was just very, you know, soon before he died, Mirabai was there, I was not there. I don't think he said hardly anything. You know, he just sat there in front of people and beamed at them, and. And everyone I talked to who was there was so happy they'd gone. They felt like they'd gotten so much. So um, he just kept putting himself out there, and and it was very beautiful. All right. We're going to have to stop there, but thanks, first of all, to Mirabai Bush and to Sharon Salzberg. And you have some homework, too. Um, uh, Not you guys, but uh, you should watch (laughs) Going Home on Netflix. Uh, When Becoming Nobody becomes available, uh, you should watch that, too. It's it's equally equally amazing. And obviously, both Mirabai Bush and uh, Sharon Salzberg have written many books. Which There's one more thing I want to say that on the 22nd of January, there's going to be a worldwide kind of moment of remembrance of Ron. And the link will be at ramdas.org. You can find it there. Oh, Mirabai, thanks so much for that. And thanks to both of you. And thanks to all of you who listened. And we're going to say goodbye now. God is in the Vatican. God goes there for vacation. God is in the Quaker meeting. Oh, oh sleepy high. Start the singing. God is in your guru. How do you spell that? G U R U. God is in the atheist saying, yeah, I don't exist. God is in the flowing down. Then and now and now.